to hold forth the name of the Lord Jesus and to make it famous and make it known. Please follow along as I read Revelate, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 8, uh, verses 1 through 17. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Verse 5, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Verse 14, and when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Let me ask that we pray once more. Our Father in heaven, as we come before your written word, we pray that you would mold and shape us by it, that you would speak to us by it, and that your word would go forth in power uh, such to change us. Father, we pray that what we ask not you would give us, what we know not you would teach us, and what we are not you would make us for Jesus' sake. Amen. When the original readers of Matthew's gospel were confronted with his presentation of the person of Jesus, they were brought face to face with several key questions that had to be answered. For example, what do we make of the assertions regarding Jesus' relation to the Old Testament? How are we to understand what Matthew is telling us about the connection he sees between Old Testament Scripture and this man Jesus? A second question was, what do we make of Jesus' extraordinary teaching? There are five discourse sections in Matthew's Gospel. The largest is, of course, the Sermon on the Mount. What do we make of what this man is saying? He seems to speak as a prophet of God. He seems to speak with more reliable authority than Moses himself. What do we make of his teaching and what he says on behalf of God? A third question, a most important question they could ask, is what do we make of him, who he claims to be? And what do we make of his death on the cross and his supposed resurrection from the dead, which we'll get to later in this book. That is the most crucial question that the readers of Matthew's gospel would have been left with. 
There is another question they had to consider in relation to Jesus. And this is a question that confronts people still today who read Matthew's gospel. And I think this is a question that presents a unique challenge to modern readers. And that question is, what should we make of the miracles of Jesus? Why the miracles? What function are they playing? What are they revealing in Matthew's presentation of Jesus? Of course, the liberal theologians of the last century do not regard the miracles as literal miracles at all. The miracles, they argue, have nothing to do with the Jesus of history, but only the Christ of faith. The miracles are part of the myth-making surrounding Jesus that grew up after he died. They obviously never happened. Their record in the gospel accounts is merely symbolic, not literal. And as an overwhelming and convincing proof of this thesis, they say, well, I've never seen a miracle. Have you? Which has always been a bit puzzling to me. After all, there are all kinds of things I've never seen before that I trust have occurred. The facts that actually shape and influence my entire life that neither I nor anyone I know have ever actually witnessed. Things in the past and things operating now in the present. It's only been in the last couple hundred years that people have regarded, well, I've never seen a miracle have you as a credible argument against the historical reliability of the biblical accounts of miracles. The reason for this is because over the last two or three hundred years, the world has been steadily, we could say, disenchanted by the enlightened mixture of rationalism, industrialism, and modernism. Miracles, therefore, are seen as quaint and superstitious in a world of gears, algorithms, and advanced medicines. But I see no logical reason at all why the technological, scientific, and medical advances of the last century or two should influence our view of the possibility and historicity of miracles. Moreover, if the suggestion is that we shouldn't believe in the miracles because, after all, that is supernatural divine activity, I would simply respond, well, isn't that kind of the point? Aren't we trying to ascribe to Jesus something that no mere man could do? Of course, he would represent an anomaly. He would represent a a, a special thing to come across the ticker, a special thing to come across the radar, something that no man can do, no man has ever seen. This Jesus is doing things only God can do. You're making my argument for me. But moving past the suggestions of non-Christian theologians, we as Christians should nonetheless ask, why the miracles? And if we present our question to the gospel writers themselves, What are these miracles here for? What are they meant to reveal? What do they teach us? We arrive at a number of answers. First, the miracles were meant to be a striking vindication of the reality that Jesus was truly sent from God. One of the proofs that Jesus was sent from God was the works that He did, the miracles that He did. I mentioned last week in the sermon the statement from Matthew 11 when John the Baptist is wondering if this is the Christ or if they look for another Uh, Jesus tells him, go and tell them what you've seen. Uh, The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the poor have good news preached to them. Like Messiah things are happening. God things are happening. The gospel writers again and again cite the miracles as a vindication that Jesus is indeed who he claimed to be. But secondly, the miracles were were meant to reveal the kingdom of heaven. The miracles, if you can think of it this way, Jesus is here, the kingdom of heaven is announced, he comes as the king, and in his earthly ministry, we, we see sort of the kingdom of heaven uh, in 
uh, kind of tipping its hand. We see a momentary inbreaking of the kingdom of heaven in the things that Jesus was saying and doing. Uh, Jesus is in a sense saying when the kingdom of heaven comes, these are the kinds of things that will happen. A death and disease will be defeated. They will be beat back. The blind will see. The deaf will hear. Death and disease and sin and all of its effects will not be permitted to run their course when my kingdom is present. And we saw this, of course, in Jesus' earthly ministry. We expect to see it in its fulfillment when he returns again. There's a third answer we can give to the question, why miracles? And what do miracles reveal? Uh, That is as important, perhaps, as important, excuse me, perhaps even more important than these first two answers. And it's this third answer that I hope we will see revealed in our text this morning. We're going to look at verses 1 through 17. And in this text, we have three healing miracles and then a summary statement on the importance of Jesus healing miracles. So four points this morning to frame our consideration of this passage. We'll consider first, the healing of the leper. Second, the healing of the centurion's servant. Third, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. And then fourth, the importance of Jesus' healing miracles. Let's consider first uh, the healing of the leper. And now, I don't have short-term memory loss. I know we considered this passage last week. Uh, We considered it as a standalone text. Now I want to consider it in a larger context and do so uh, only briefly. Let's consider first the healing of the leper. Uh, First, of course, we considered last time the leper himself. We noted first his condition. He has leprosy a terrible disease, a dreaded disease that not only was tremendously uncomfortable and painful, but also yielded the man a religious and social outcast. Lepers were put outside the camp and were regarded as ceremonially unclean. This man was defiled. This man was an outcast. We noted, secondly, his faith. This man, though defiled and unclean, ceremonially unclean according to the law of Moses, he nonetheless hears of Jesus and realizes that in Jesus there might be a cure for his leprosy, and he goes, actually in violation of the Mosaic law, and finds Jesus. And Jesus, we learn, is pleased to show compassion to him and to heal him. Jesus, when he sees him, does not withdraw from him. Jesus says, Rather, I will be clean. And he stretches out his hand, and he does what no one could do. He actually touches the man. Remember, no one touches lepers. You would become yourself unclean. But what Jesus does, he touches the man with leprosy, and rather than himself becoming unclean, he makes the unclean man clean. Because that's what the Messiah does. The Messiah can touch that which defiles us. And the effect is not that that which defiles us defiles him, but rather with his touch and by his divine power and by his mercy and grace, we are washed, we are cleansed, and that is demonstrated in the healing of the leper. What this episode reveals is that Jesus can do what the law of Moses could never do, and indeed what the law of Moses pointed to and anticipated. Jesus can do what only God can do. Jesus is able to make clean by his touch that which was unclean. And of course, we consider the implication is that if he can heal lepers, he is indeed the Messiah and can heal us of all our uncleanness and all that defiles us. Now, before leaving this first point, I want to briefly highlight verse 4, which I did not have time uh, to expound last week. In verse 4, Jesus then says to the man, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now, what's going on here? Uh, I think Jesus likely told this man to tell no one of what had happened because if he did, it would only increase Jesus' public exposure 
and would make it more difficult for him to carry out his work. Uh, I think Jesus, we see him in the Gospels, especially in the Gospel of Mark, often telling people, now, now don't share publicly about this. And the main reason is, if everyone knew what Jesus was doing, it would impede his ability to enter certain cities and certain towns and to carry out the work that he came to accomplish. This is actually precisely the reason we're given in the parallel account of this episode in Mark 1. There in Mark 1, verse 44, we read, And Jesus said to him, the leper he had just cleansed, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. And then it says, But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. I think that's the practical reason why Jesus tells this man not to share broadly what had happened. Okay, now let's consider the second point in our passage this morning, the healing of the centurion's servant. So we just went fast, now we're going to go a little slower on this second point. Read with me again verses 5 through 13. And when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does that. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Uh, Let's again consider the centurion. And then we'll consider the Lord himself under this second main heading. First consider the centurion. Few things to note about this individual. First note his identity. Uh, This man is a Roman centurion. He would have been entrusted with a troop of soldiers who would have served under his command. He is likely stationed in Capernaum. Uh, There were Roman authorities stationed in every Jewish town. Uh, Now, the Romans, uh, we should not imagine that they were in every way antagonistic toward the Jews. They did tolerate their way of life. They did make some accommodations for them to observe their particular special days and festivals and rituals and things like that. But they nonetheless represented a foreign power over God's people who oppressed them in significant ways. The Romans were pagan overlords. The Jews would have seen them as God's enemies. They were the ones over God's people. What is most important to appreciate then about this Roman centurion as it pertains to this passage is simply that this Roman centurion was a non-Jew. And more than that would have been regarded as an enemy of the Jewish people. When you're telling a story to Jews, you don't make the Roman centurion the protagonist. The Roman centurion is never the good guy in the story. Now, the Roman centurion would have been the antagonist or the bad guy in Jewish imagination. Okay, note second about this centurion, his need, his identity now, his need. He says in verse 6, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. He comes to Jesus apparently on behalf of one he loves. The servant was likely dear to him, regarded as a member of his own household, and he's burdened for his servant and in distress over his condition. 
I consider thirdly with the centurion his faith, his identity, his need, his faith. Verse 7, and he said to him, Jesus said to him, I will come and heal your servant. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. Jesus apparently expresses his willingness to come to his home. Jesus was on his way to some appointment. He's going to stop what he's doing and go to this man's home and to meet the need that this man brings to Jesus. But the centurion stops him and tells him, no, that would not be appropriate. Look, look, please don't do that. Just say the word. You don't need to stop what you're doing. Just, just say the word and I know my servant will be healed. Don't come to my house. I am an unworthy man. My house is an unworthy place for a man of your worthiness, your dignity, your power, your stature, your holiness to enter. What is being revealed here by this statement from the centurion? What's being revealed here is that this centurion has a proper view of himself and a proper view of Jesus. Note, he's not wrong in his assertion. Jesus doesn't correct him. He is reflecting an appropriately low view of himself and his unworthiness and a properly high view of Jesus and his worthiness. His faith first expresses itself in a proper estimation of who he himself is before God and who Jesus himself is. The centurion's faith further expresses itself in his total confidence that Jesus can heal his servant simply with a word. The centurion knows and believes Jesus can not only command the disease that is right in front of him, as in the case of the leper, but he can command diseases with a word from miles away. You see the implication. The centurion is ascribing to Jesus nothing short of divine omniscience and omnipotence. He believes Jesus knows at that very moment precisely where his servant lies. He knows precisely the condition his servant has. He is able to heal him simply by a word, doesn't even need to knock at the door, doesn't even need to be within miles of the guy. He knows precisely where that servant is, what his condition is, and what needs to be done to heal him. Friends, just an implication here. Jesus, as the God-man, knows everything about you, and he knows everything about the ones you love. He knows all of your needs before you ask. He knows them at a cellular level. There is no concern that you have in your own life or in the lives of those you love that Jesus is not aware of and that Jesus lacks the power to address with a word in a moment. And notice how the centurion then makes this point in verse 9. For I too am a man under authority. With soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. In other words, the centurion draws an analogy between Jesus' authority and his own. As a centurion, this man operates with the full authority of the emperor himself. He is appointed to carry out the emperor's work. His word as a centurion over a town is the emperor's word. To disobey the centurion is the same as disobeying the emperor. Similarly, the centurion recognizes that Jesus operates with divine authority. His word is God's word. His command must be heeded as God's command. He operates with the divine seal. It's a remarkable statement of faith in Jesus' divine power and authority. 
The centurion is saying, I believe you come from God himself, and your word is God's word. We'll consider Jesus now under this second heading, but the healing of the centurion's servant. Again, a few things to note here about Jesus. First, note his compassion. Jesus said, verse 7, I will come, and I will heal him. We noted Jesus' compassion in the account with the leper. We see it again reflected here in the second miracle in chapter 8. He becomes aware again of a pressing physical need, someone in distress, and he is immediately moved with pity to help and heal. And he's willing to interrupt his agenda and his plans to go and meet this need. We see an illustration of Jesus' compassion. Now, I could be wrong, and I would really love someone to correct me on this after the service if I'm wrong, because I've said this a half dozen times or so, and I'm afraid of being embarrassed by getting this like so wrong. But if no one corrects me, I'm going to keep saying it a lot, okay? I'm not aware of a single recorded instance in the Gospels of Jesus being faced with a pressing physical need in which he does not meet that need. Well, if you could think of one, I mean, don't think about it now. Think about it this week, send me an email. But I'm not aware of a single account of Jesus being faced with human deprivation, human need, human disease and misery, and not intervening to bring healing, to bring relief. I think there's mammoth implications for that. I'm not going to work them all out now. You can be the judge of some of those implications. I'll just mention one, though. One implication is that Jesus certainly felt genuine compassion when confronted with human need. He felt genuine compassion when confronted by human need. And I'll remind you, Jesus is still this day conditioned by the incarnation. He is still the God-man. He still is moved with pity when faced with human need. And his disposition, when he was among us on the earth, was to remedy human need. He was moved with pity when confronted with human disease and death and sorrow and sadness. And he did not like it. He wanted to change it. And in every recorded instance I can think of, he does address it in compassion and in love. Christian, it is the same with you. Your Savior is at all times sympathetic toward your pain and your needs. The second thing we note about Jesus here is Jesus' mighty power. We see it again. Verse 13, and to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Notice Jesus' power is not merely vested in his touch, but in his bare word. And note again how this miracle demonstrates Jesus' omniscience and omnipotence. He knows where that man lies. The centurion was not wrong. With a word in an instant, he is able to meet the need and to bring relief. Third, note Jesus' affirmation, finally, his affirmation of the centurion's faith. Look at verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus says he has not found such faith in all Israel. That is both a stunning affirmation of the centurion's faith and a stinging indictment of the Jewish response to Jesus. Uh, notice where Jesus goes with this. He says, I tell you, many will come from east and west. He means like from other nations, 
For places not here, from east and west, they will come and they will recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the great patriarchs of the Jewish people, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. Jesus here in a somewhat veiled and cryptic way is hinting at two major themes that are picked up later in Matthew's gospel as well as the other gospel accounts and the book of Acts. The first is the reality that Jesus is the Savior of the world. He has come for the nations. He has come for the Gentiles as much as for the Jews. Gentiles will be included in Christ's redemptive purposes. And notice, it's not that God has a separate redemptive program for Israel and for the Gentiles. No, these Gentiles are included in what God has been doing from the beginning. They will recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They will be brought in on the same basis as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, namely by faith, and they will have the same reward as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But then there's a second theme that is hinted at here, and that is Jewish rejection of Jesus, stated most concisely in the opening verses of John's gospel. He came to his own, and his own received him not. Jesus says the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. He means the sons of the kingdom of Israel. Those who were the natural inheritors of the promises, they're not going to make it. They are going to reject Jesus. And Jesus is predicting the nations will have a better response to Jesus than Jesus' own people. That's what's being hinted at here. You can see illustration of this. We don't have time to read it. But in Acts 28, the way Acts ends, we see a striking illustration of this. Paul is addressing under house arrest in Rome a group of Jews who come to hear him in his lodgings, and he's teaching them, and they're not believing, and he pronounces the indictment of Isaiah's prophecy over them. But seeing you do not see, Isaiah long foretold that you would not believe. And then he says, verse 28, therefore let it be known to you, this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. But notice, friends, what determines whether or not one enters the kingdom of heaven, whether Jew or Gentile? It is where you stand in relation to Jesus. The issue is how you respond to Jesus. Religious, cultural, and ethnic privilege will get you nowhere with Jesus. The question is, do you personally trust in Him? Do you, turning from sin, embrace Him as the Christ? Do you believe that He is who He says He is, like this centurion? That is the crucial question. And don't miss what's at stake. You respond rightly to Jesus and embrace him as God's own son and the savior of the world. You will sit at the feast table in the kingdom of heaven forever and ever with all of God's people. Or if you reject him, you will be banished to outer darkness where there is only weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's an extraordinary statement Jesus is making. This is like what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember the crowds at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? We've never heard someone speak with this kind of authority. No scribe could have stood up in the synagogue and said, now, whether or not you will end up in heaven or hell will depend on how you respond to my sermon today. My words to you. Jesus says, but it will be decided on whether or not you turn from your sins and trust in me. Those that do, 
everlasting life in the kingdom of heaven. Those who don't, outer darkness in a place called hell, well, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth forevermore. I just want to give at this point a brief word to the children of Emmanuel Church and to some of you young people uh, who are with us. Uh, By virtue of being born into a Christian home, uh, having, as many of you do, godly parents, being in a setting where the biblical gospel, I hope, is preached faithfully, and a setting where God's word is taught, puts you in a statement of immense privilege. Immense privilege. Of the kind of privilege that 99.99% of people don't have. You have immense privilege. But I don't want any child here to think, by virtue of coming to church, or memorizing the catechism, or knowing the right answers in Sunday school, or learning the words to the songs, that any of that makes you right with God. Your parents can't make you right with God. Your pastors can't make you right with God. You cannot assume because you have such a privileged opportunity of being in a church, well, it's all going to be well with my soul. I'll be all right. No, kids, this is the issue. It's what we try to tell you week by week. Uh, You, like all of us, are a sinner in need of the saving grace of God. And God has made a way of salvation through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you turn from your sin and trust in Him, you will be saved. You can be made right with God. And do you know what your reward will be if you trust in Christ? What He will give to all those who are His? Eternal life in paradise forever in the kingdom of heaven. But if you reject Jesus, none of us, as much as we would like, your parents, your pastors, your Sunday school teachers, none of us can shield you from the penalty of rejecting Christ, the penalty that is due to your sin. And it's described here in this passage, outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Kids, we do not want any of you to go to hell. We would rather you turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus Christ that you might be saved. And we have revealed here in this passage, you are saved through faith in Jesus. And you can, as a five-year-old, believe this message and trust in the Lord and you will be saved. You could do it as a 15-year-old, you could do it as a 50-year-old. Whether or not we will be in heaven or hell is determined by how we respond to Christ. May we all respond well. Look to Him in saving faith. All right, point number three. I know there's lots of points and numbers today. I appreciate your patience. Number one, the healing of the leper. Number two, the healing of the centurion servant. Now we're going to go fast again. Fast, slow, fast, slow. Number three, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. Here in verses 14 to 15, we have a very terse account of another miracle which Jesus performs. Very light on details, it's just very quick. We read in verse 14, and when Jesus entered Peter's house, I guess the assumption is that was the original destination, He saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. Just a couple of things quickly to observe here. First, simply notice, Jesus is not just off with the men somewhere having a theological conversation. He is in tune with the needs of the lady of the house. He is in tune with the needs and the well-being of this poor woman. 
And he is again, we see, compassionately sensitive to human need. We learn she has a fever. Uh, I don't think we're to imagine this as some kind of passing fever of, you know, 100.4, does a little 24-hour cycle and is gone. You can knock it back with Tylenol or something like that. And now this is a high fever that has likely been with her for some time, and she is in serious peril and is perhaps even in danger of losing her life. Here in these verses, we simply read, Jesus saw her, and of his own accord, he touched her. In this case, we have no account of the woman saying anything. So no request is made. A Jesus, by sheer compassion and by his mere determination to heal, reaches out and touches her apart from any request that's made, at least any request that we have recorded in the narrative. Perhaps the woman was so overcome with sickness she cannot even discern Jesus' presence. Perhaps her mind was so altered by her distress, by this fever, such that she didn't even know that the Lord was near. Friends, just a brief application. Remember, Jesus is present and active even if our present distress makes us insensible to his presence. Jesus is present and active even if our present distress makes us insensible to his presence. He is near and he is working even when we don't feel it or discern it. He is often so kind as to bring a solution to our distress and to bring healing and restoration even before we ask, even before we know how or what to ask. That appears to be what happens in this instance. Jesus is simply aware of the need. He sees her. He goes to her. And apart from any request or appeal that's made to him, he mercifully draws near and acts of his own accord to heal her. That's point number three. Now point number four. We've seen the healing of the leper. We've seen the healing of the centurion's servant, verses 5 through 13. The healing of Peter's mother-in-law, verses 14 through 15. Now in verses 16 through 17, we consider the importance of Jesus healing miracles. I told you there's a third answer to that question, what's revealed by Jesus' miracles. It's not just that it vindicates that he's set from God. It's not just that he is displaying the work of the kingdom of heaven. There's, I think, a third answer we can give. It's revealed in this passage. Why the miracles? What are we meant to see in all of this? Look at verse 16. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Now, I'm not going to talk about this issue with demons in this sermon because we're going to have a sort of in-your-face account of Jesus' conflict with the demons in just a few weeks. So I'm going to leave the demon possession and the casting out of demons aside for this morning. But Jesus is casting out demons. He's healing all who were sick. Verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Matthew, after providing us with three examples of the kinds of miraculous healings Jesus performed, uh, each one revealing something about Jesus, his person, and his mission, after providing these actual examples, Matthew then provides here in verses 16 through 17 a kind of summary statement on Jesus' healing ministry, followed by a statement concerning what is revealed by his healing ministry. That's how I understand verses 16 and 17 to work. It's like a pause in the narrative with a note to the reader to explain the significance of what's going on. This is Matthew saying, now you're tracking with me, right? I don't want those three healings to just sort of pass by you without comment. You understand what this means? That's what we have in verses 
16 and 17. So we read 16. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. In other words, I think he's saying the kinds of things we've seen Jesus do in Matthew 8, 1 through 15 were simply characteristic of Jesus' ministry. Matthew's, in essence, saying there's a lot more where that came from. I'm just giving you some specimens. There's a lot more. Jesus was doing this like all the time. How many people came to him that evening? Demon-possessed. How many came to him with diseases needing healing? We don't know, but we know that he healed them all. And we don't have particular accounts of every single healing that Jesus ever did. What's more than that, in the rest of chapter 8 and chapter 9, we're going to see several more. And still more in Matthew's gospel that will come later on. Then Matthew inserts this comment in verse 17. He says, this was to fulfill, casting out of demons, the healing of diseases. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now we've already seen in Matthew's gospel that one of his purposes in writing is to show us in numerous ways how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament's expectations concerning the coming Christ. Remember, like I said last week, he's mounting an argument. He's making a case by all that he is writing that Jesus is the longed-for Christ, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Lord and the Savior of the world. Now, this is crucial. Matthew quotes here from Isaiah 53, verse 4, to make the point, apparently, that Jesus' amazing healing ministry was anticipated in the Old Testament, particularly in Isaiah's prophecy. I was going to have you turn there. You can turn if you'd like to Isaiah 53. I'm just going to quote three verses, okay, to give you this verse in context. He's quoting Isaiah 53, 4. Listen to this verse in context. Surely he, that is the suffering servant of the Lord, the coming Messiah, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's the verse that's being quoted by Matthew. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now let me stop there. What do you notice about this passage in relation to Matthew's quote? First of all, we can recognize that Matthew's quote of Isaiah 53, 4 is not the same as what we find in verse 4, at least in our modern translations. So Matthew said, he has carried our illnesses, bore our diseases. Isaiah says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, at least in the ESV translation. Now it's not uncommon, listen, for the New Testament writers to quote from the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. If you've never heard that word, can't repeat it at lunch today, that's fine. The Septuagint was the Greek translation, the popular Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And the New Testament writers will often quote from the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. However, Matthew's quotation of the passage, Isaiah 53, 4, doesn't exactly align with the original Hebrew text or the Septuagint translation, which leads many reliable commentators to conclude Matthew is either working from a different Greek text than the Septuagint, and there were other Greek texts out there, or likely 
providing his own literal translation of the Hebrew. And if you study the Hebrew words at play, I won't go into detail on this, uh, Matthew's translation is permissible. It's a valid translation. I don't think Matthew is misquoting the Old Testament or playing fast and loose with the text. I think he may be providing his own translation of the Hebrew. But more importantly, when we compare Matthew's use of Isaiah 53.4 with what the verse seems to convey in its original context, we notice something seems a bit off. Track with me. I know this is kind of technical and meticulous here, okay? Matthew cites the verse, Isaiah 53.4, to explain what it is or why it is, excuse me, that Jesus took the illnesses and diseases of the people. After all, Isaiah said he'll take our illnesses and our diseases. But that doesn't appear to be, at least, what Isaiah is talking about in the original context, in Isaiah 53. What is Isaiah talking about? Many of you know this passage well. It's one of those well-known passages in the Old Testament. He's talking about the suffering servant, the Messiah, taking away our sins and transgressions and making atonement for them. He's not talking primarily about miraculous healings. He's talking about sin-bearing. He's talking about offering up himself as a vicarious sacrifice so that sinners can be made right with God. This isn't about really healing leprosy. It's about ridding us of sin and making us right with God. So what is Matthew doing here? Is he just playing a kind of word association game with the Old Testament? Is he isolating this text from its context and reading something foreign into it to advance his own agenda? I don't think so at all. Here's what I see Matthew doing. I think Matthew sees the healing of our diseases as being of a peace with the forgiveness of our sins. The implication is that by taking our diseases, Christ is demonstrating that he has the power to forgive our sins and to fulfill Isaiah 53. If he bears our diseases, he can bear our sins. If he bears our sins, he can bear our diseases. Therefore, when Isaiah said he took our griefs and carried our sorrows or took our diseases and our illnesses, he meant all of it, illness and disease and death, and most of all, our sins. His salvation takes care of everything. Matthew sees the bearing of our diseases as pointing to the bearing of our sins. I think this idea, by the way, lies behind what we're about to see in Matthew 9. Just look over at Matthew 9, if you would. Just the first few verses. Matthew 9, verse 1. Notice in this account how healing diseases and forgiving sins are connected with one another. Matthew 9, verse 1, And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on his bed. Same old, same old, right? Someone who needs healing. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Is that what he needed? He's paralyzed. He needs to get up and walk. But Jesus said, My son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes, said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? To forgive his sins or to heal him of paralysis? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose, 
and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. What is the implication? If this man has power and authority to take away this man's paralysis, he surely has the power and authority to forgive him of his sins. And vice versa. He forgives the man's sins. You want proof that I can forgive his sins? Hey, get up, walk. You're, you're healed, you're clean, you're well. You want a proof that I can do this? I could heal disease. I could forgive sins. Jesus, in bearing illnesses and diseases such as leprosy, paralysis, fevers, demon possession, blindness, deafness, he, in bearing our diseases, is acting in accord with what he will ultimately do on the cross in bearing the ultimate disease, sin itself. After all, sin is what introduces death and diseases into the world. Matthew understands this connection. And thus he reads into Isaiah 53, 4, the defeat of disease and death in the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. It's all of a piece. But friends, we must appreciate this. It is sin that is understood to be the ultimate sickness. Sin is the disease. Sin is the virus. Death and disease are the symptoms. And the one who has the power and authority to bear our sins has the power and authority to bear our illnesses and our diseases. And the one who has the power and authority to bear our illnesses and our diseases has the power and authority to bear our sins. The point is, we need this one who bears our illnesses and diseases. We need this one who bears our sins. But we must appreciate this. This is where I'll conclude this morning. Sin lies beneath all our other problems. It is the ultimate issue. What we need most is for Jesus to bear our sins in our place. And if he bears our sins in our place, my friend, he can take care of everything else that is wrong with us and with this sinful world. All the evils of our lives that extend from sin. But make no mistake, My friend, your ultimate problem and my ultimate problem is sin. Your biggest problem, I I know most of you that I look out on now, many of you I don't. I don't need to know you to make this statement. Your biggest problem is not your unmet dreams or your disappointed expectations. It is not your family or who your parents are or who you're married to or not married to. Your biggest problem, my friend, is not your loneliness. It's not your lack of friends. It's not COVID. It's not cancer. It's not what's in our water or in our processed foods. It's not your ADHD, your anxiety, or your personality disorder. Your biggest problem is not society or culture. It's not who's in the White House. Your biggest problem is not that you're not as smart or as pretty or as successful as you'd like to be. My friend, we must get this straight in our minds. You must get this straight in your mind. Your biggest problem is your sin. And the thousands of diseases and disorders that extend from your sin. And I've got such good news for you. Jesus bore our diseases, including the ultimate disease, 
from which all other disease comes. Jesus bore our sins. He who has the power to heal lepers and paralytics and dying women has the power to forgive sins. And he who has the power to forgive sins can take care of everything else. And remember now what Jesus said in response to the centurion. Whether or not you experience salvation in him, healing in him, everlasting life in him depends on how you respond to him. Will you, like so many of the Jews, reject him and be cast into outer darkness where there is only weeping and gnashing of teeth? Or will you, like the leper and the centurion, put your faith and trust in Jesus, turning from sin, that you might with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the saints, men like Randy Bazzino, faithful gone before, that you, like the saints, might inherit eternal life in the kingdom of heaven forever and ever. My friend, Jesus can bear your sins. And he can bear everything else that's wrong with you. And that's wrong with this world. One day all things will be made new. Perfectly so. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we need the man that came to bear our illnesses and our diseases. We need him. We are a room of those who are sick and unclean and defiled and broken and so sinful. We need the one who can cleanse us, the one who has perfect omniscience. He's not going to overlook a single offense, knows each one, and thus can make sure each last one is forgiven. We need the Lord who with a word can make us well. We need that one who can bear all illnesses and all our diseases, who can bear our sin, our iniquity, and our transgressions, and can make us finally well. Lord, I want to be at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I don't want to go into outer darkness. Would you please so work within us to save us from that place where there is only weeping and gnashing of teeth. Save us all. Save our children. Save us all. And would you bring us into the kingdom of heaven through your own dear son and his disease and sin bearing for us. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.